Hello, and welcome to the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. The problem, basically, is theological. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. I'd like to welcome you back to the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Porter. And I want to talk today about America's frontal lobotomy. I know that sounds a little weird to people, but think about this for a minute. The United States is in the midst of a severe identity crisis. We just don't seem to know who we are anymore. We've become a nation of divided loyalties and disparate visions about what it even means to be an American. Radical leftist progressives, some of whom are now serving in even the upper echelons of our government, have encouraged, aided, and abetted our collective amnesia. Our common disability has provided progressive change agents nearly unchallenged freedom to promote racial divisions, economic envy, and class warfare among our people. There is little active opposition against them at this time because people are so distracted that they can't understand what's happening. A house divided cannot stand, and unless we become hyper-aware and awakened in time, these divisions will not be healed, and our national house stands in grave danger. Political views always arise out of someone's personal convictions about what is right and wrong, good and evil. For biblical Christians, such opinions are based on the belief that God alone establishes what is good or evil. For professing atheists, on the other hand, such concepts of right and wrong, good and evil, originate actually from the lumber borrowed or co-opted from biblical sources. While they obstinately refuse to acknowledge their creator, the unregenerate pick and choose as a matter of their own inventiveness what vices or virtues may suit them at the moment. Now here's an important question. How could it happen that the people of America, who were once so hyper-conscious of and grateful for God's blessings and respectful of His commandments, could within a few short generations so radically forsake their earlier reverential fear and respect for God? You know, we've descended into an abyss of ignorant rebellion and debauchery unmatched in our nation's history. Now, some people would pin the blame for our moral and ethical decline to simple immorality in the film and entertainment industry or rock music or aesthetic influences in our schools. But I wouldn't point to these factors as the primary causes of our decline. These are actually effects 
not causes. The principal causative factor that gave rise to the problems that we're now facing in America is not as obvious, but is incredibly profound. In my personal view, the main cause is that a significant number of Christian leaders and churches over the past two centuries have neglected to aggressively promote and teach fundamental biblical theological truths to subsequent generations. This failure opened nearly unchallenged opportunities for the minions of darkness to gradually blind people to the truth. They fell into a spiritual slumber and lost the ability to discern and actively resist evil. Even the very word evil in our times, especially in the context of personal morality, began to be replaced with softer terms like dysfunctional behaviors or unhealthy choices. Liberal theologians increasingly scoffed at the very idea of sin or a real devil in favor of a more genteel idea and concept of psychological illness or emotional deficits. Many seminaries began to come under the influence of theological liberals. Future pastors were indoctrinated to teach their congregants to avoid political involvements and keep separate from the world. The vital importance of teaching historical and orthodox Christian doctrine and theology to their congregations was minimized. The result? a lack of biblically educated Christian participation in those critical areas, especially in public policy and education. This created an ethical and philosophical vacuum that threw open the societal and political gates for wolves to come in among the sheep and devour them. Teaching the full counsel of God is difficult, and it often offends the pride of men. Instead, a more seeker-friendly social gospel has gained popularity focusing on people's felt needs instead of the critical needs of their souls. Biblical doctrines regarding the sin and depravity of man through Adam's fall, God's sovereignty and eternal judgment came to be regarded as divisive and controversial, which, of course, it is. The teaching emphasis within many churches shifted toward promoting cordial relationships and making everyone feel loved and accepted. Perhaps the most damning lie was the idea that all people are basically good in their own way, and Christians were widely shamed into embracing the false idea that it was always wrong to judge. The concept of truth is an absolute applicable in every person at all times and in all places. That was replaced by a vague notion of many truths. This teaching promotes the idea that everyone's beliefs are equally valid, depending on the circumstances and the timing. In this relativistic paradigm, it really doesn't matter what one believes as long as they are sincere. This is nonsense, of course. The most vicious mass murderers and despotic dictators in history, including the devil himself, were all sincere, but their sincerity could never justify their monstrous deeds of evil before God. Now, in recent times, there is an emerging anti-intellectual attitude that has arisen among many Christians who reject the importance of accurate exegesis 
theological education or the study of church history, personally held revelations received directly from the Holy Spirit are increasingly regarded as superior to historically proven scriptural scholarship. In this mode of thinking, the individual becomes the final arbiter of truth and falsehood according to how they personally sense the, quote, moving of the Holy Spirit, air quote. Personal revelations, if tested and proven, can be extremely edifying. However, they are highly subjective and frequently lead to rather bizarre interpretations of Scripture, which are totally unhinged from historical biblical scholarship and proven interpretation. As a result of this creeping apostasy within Western Christianity, slowly and incrementally, secular historical revisionists and radical leftist progressives have systematically transformed our schools into secular indoctrination institutions. Atheistic control of the education apparatus progressively filtered out nearly all consciousness of a biblically-based morality and a Christian worldview, unless in the context of mocking. This deconstruction of America's Christian foundations was no accident, in my opinion. All evidence indicates that it was a deliberate act of national sabotage through misinformation and selective censorship of history. The secularist goal is to strip America's children, and consequently all future adults, of any real awareness of our nation's rich Christian heritage. This Christian legacy forms the foundation and bedrock of all we hold to be right and good. As a result, Many have lost any real appreciation of our unsurpassed freedoms under our amazing and unique in all of human history, Constitution and Bill of Rights. We've now come to the point that many school districts are banning the display of the U.S. flag or constitutional education in the name of diversity. That sort of censorship promotes a sense of shame in students about the display of our flag or open expressions of patriotism. Liberals fear that the public display of love for America might offend someone from another country. Thankfully, some students and communities are beginning to push back against these politically correct, secular progressive thought police. Who were we in the past? This is an incredibly important question. In spite of decades of our people being systematically dumbed down by the educational system, there yet remains a flickering memory of a time nearly forgotten when kids could play in their neighborhoods without their parents being overly concerned that they might be abducted or sexually molested by perverts living nearby. In my childhood, people looked out for each other, and police officers were our neighbors and friends, not to be feared, but respected for their service. It was a time when the entertainment industry honored and promoted ordinary families with mothers and fathers, nurturing and training their children to be caring, honest adults. Family traditions like attending church were considered important, never to be mocked. Young people were taught in public school to respect and safely handle firearms, mostly in the context of hunter safety classes and learn to take serious responsibility for their proper uses. 
In spite of easy access to firearms by students, either in their homes or vehicles or transported to and from safety classes, I'm unaware personally of a single instance of a student shooting a teacher or a classmate. Now this begs a question. With all the availability of guns in homes and schools and the familiarity of students that they had with firearms, even in the earliest grades, why weren't there any school shootings? You know, when I was a boy, it was quite common for my friends to receive their first hunting rifle for a birthday or Christmas gift. What was different then, and how has our society changed? I believe that there are two main reasons for the increase in firearm violence, especially among young people. The first involves the way people are conditioned to think about firearms. Most people in my childhood regarded guns as a necessary evil for home defense, to be used with care and respect for their deadly potential. Many of us hunted game or belonged to organizations like Boy Scouts where many young people were taught to respect nature and take responsibility for the safe use of firearms for hunting. We also had a much stronger sense of community and cared for people around us beyond our immediate families. In recent decades, popular entertainment mostly portrays gun violence without any sense of moral conscience. Gang bangers and the gangsta rap music idols, as well as the mind-numbing violence in many video games, have desensitized young people about the devastating effects of firearm violence without any appeal to their conscience or empathy for their victims. The other primary reason, which might surprise some of you, is the exponential increase in the use of psychotropic mind-altering pharmaceuticals upon schoolchildren. I deal with this issue elsewhere, but there seems to be a direct correlation between the use of these medications and student suicides and school violence. This cause is largely ignored by the news media, with the primary focus placed on the types of weapons used in these tragic incidents, particularly when firearms are involved. When knives are used, the media seems to have a serious attention deficit dysfunction. Many of the favorite TV shows of the 50s and 60s included westerns such as The Rifleman, Gunslinger, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Have Gun Will Travel, The Lone Ranger, Roy and Dale Rogers, and Bonanza. These productions prominently featured people who openly carried firearms exclusively, protecting their person, their communities, and their families. The stories featured heroic symbols of honesty and courage and personal responsibility. They were mostly morality plays where lawless bad guys with guns were kept at bay by good guys with guns. I remember film and TV actors like John Wayne, Glenn Ford, Charlton Heston, James Arness, Chuck Connors, and many others who played the roles of heroes and rugged individualists. As a boy, I loved to watch stories of men like Daniel Boone, Wild Bill Hickok, and even a sharp-shooting lady named Annie Oakley. These people packed firearms and were ever ready to stand up for what was right and defend the weak. The male characters were unashamed to walk tall and talk like a man's man. 
The roles they played were an inspiration to many little boys like myself, who eagerly looked forward to adulthood and their turn to be a man of honor. Manliness was understood as providing for and protecting their friends and families, training and disciplining their children, and giving noble, tender devotion to their wives. John Wayne, who passed away in 1979 at the age of 72, played the part of Colonel Davy Crockett in the 1960 film The Alamo, which he produced and directed. Not only was he a talented actor and director, but John Wayne was a patriotic American who deeply loved our republic and our constitution. In most of his films, he personified the image of a man's man who wasn't ashamed of his masculinity and was always ready to stand up for what is right. For those reasons, he is almost universally vilified by radical feminists and leftists who despise the very idea of a strong, independent man of character and integrity. Here's a powerful quote from the Alamo. I love this. Republic. I like the sound of the word. Means people can live free, talk free, go or come by or sell, be drunk or sober, however they choose. Some words give you a feeling. Republic is one of those words that makes me tighten the throat. Same tightness a man gets when his baby takes his first step or his first baby shaves and makes his first sound like a man. Some words can give you a feeling that make your heart warm. Republic is one of those words. I love that. Then I remember in 1972, the TV westerns on prime time went through a radical transformation with the premiere of a western genre program named Kung Fu, featuring a Shaolin monk and a Kung Fu expert named Kwai Chang Kane. Actor David Carradine played the part of a contemplative Eastern mystic who fought without guns against bad guys to protect the helpless and defend the weak. The prominent feature of the program was Kane's hatred of firearms and his peaceful, mystical serenity in the midst of dangerous life-or-death situations. Following this program, several other similar role models were produced by Hollywood that seemed to have one very clear message— Guns are evil. Manliness and masculinity became passé, replaced by a passive-aggressive quasi-religious monk. John Ferrier, a writer, succinctly nails the real underlying message of Kung Fu in his article, 11 Facts You Might Not Know About Kung Fu. I'm quoting, Kung Fu, which aired from 1972 to 1975, was an unusual blend of the social questioning of 70s America, an emerging fascination with the martial arts, and the introduction of Eastern thought into American pop culture. It was one of the last Westerns of American television, and thus straddled a great cultural shift that occurred during that era. Sometime before the 1960s, radical feminists began to openly attack the very idea of masculinity and traditional Bible-based gender roles as oppressive to women. They actively sought to feminize little boys, making them feel ashamed of their male identities. 
In recent decades, boys who act like boys in the classroom and their play habits and personalities are increasingly tagged as ADHD. These are often put on psychotropic drugs to suppress naturally aggressive male traits. This, I believe, has been a significant contributing factor to the great harm and damage inflicted not only upon men, but also to women and children. The use of powerful psychotropic medications on school children is becoming increasingly suspect as a contributing factor in the shocking rise of school and workplace violence in recent decades. After being on scene at several school shootings myself over the past 16 years, I was shocked to discover that in nearly every case, prescribed psychotropic drugs were used by the perpetrators as a common factor. In a few instances where they couldn't prove that psychotropic drugs were used, the medical records of the offender was sealed. I could say a lot more about this, but you kind of get my drift. Our National Frontal Lobotomy Maybe you've heard of the term frontal lobotomy that I used earlier in this. It's a surgical and sometimes electroshock or chemical procedure that damages portions of the frontal lobes of the brain related to higher cognitive and reasoning functions. Those who go through this barbaric procedure often end up more or less vegetative with radical personality changes and a marked loss of their intelligence and the ability to think clearly. It was often used to treat mental illness in the 1980s in the United States. It now appears that an entire generation has been profoundly dumbed down or metaphorically lobotomized and rendered ignorant by our pathetic education system. Without an accurate historical foundation to work off of, how could it be possible for anyone to participate wisely in our republic, vote intelligently, or choose wise leadership? We're dangerously close to nearing the point of no return politically when so many numbers of voters are motivated by nothing more than selfish interests and what personal benefits they can get from a particular party or a candidate. Our nation's plunge into stupidity was gradual. It required a lot of time for the evil brain surgeons of progressivism to dumb down our people from our former state of education to where we find ourselves now. I don't believe our present national amnesia is a permanent disability, but can be reversed only by a massive infusion of truth therapy. Accurate and complete information about our nation's history in our school classrooms is a massive part of the cure. Education has been the problem, and education is a significant part of the answer. William Ross Wallace, who lived from 1819 to 1881, said once about the profound influence a mother has on the life of a child in a poem he wrote. Here's a verse from it. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. The same principle applies to the force exerted by schools and teachers. For millennia, despots and dictators have known and practiced this principle. If you can successfully indoctrinate even one generation while they're young, you have them for life, as well as their children and their children's children. Liberal progressives often howled indignantly about the dangers of indoctrination of children by Christians, but they don't seem to have the slightest problem so long as they're doing the indoctrination. 
Several years ago, I was invited to speak at Punahou School in Hawaii. One of the chaplains at the school asked me to share some of my experiences at Ground Zero in a whole week of school assemblies with all the grade levels. After a few days of meetings and guided tours of the campus, I had a chance to meet some of the teaching staff in their classrooms, and the more I saw and the more I heard, the more alarmed I was. Punahou is a private school founded in the 1800s by Christian missionaries. Sometime in the early 1900s, the school was gradually overtaken by secular progressives. Today, for all I can observe, nearly all of the former Christian influence seems to be reduced to a small chaplain staff represented by very liberal denominations. Most of the staff openly boasted of their progressive, enlightened educational philosophy and proudly proclaimed that their students were being trained to, listen carefully, change the world. As I read over their list of alumni and in the online literature, I was amazed at the number of distinguished military, political, educational, diplomatic, and civic leaders included in their list. What really alarmed me, however, was the fact that nearly every one of them were secular progressives, firmly ensconced in the liberal camp. Punahou is a school with a vision to raise up liberal leaders to change the world. No one could argue that they are not succeeding in that vision. How can I say that? Because Barack Hussein Obama graduated from Punahou in 1979. That should tell us volumes. I think I'm going to end it right here because we're going on a little long here and pick this up at the next episode. I want you to think over carefully what I've shared with you today because each one of these points gives us a clearer insight into what's happening and serves, I believe, as an antidote for this frontal lobotomy that we've all been under to one degree or another. Thank you for joining us today on the Libertatum Chronicles podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode as we continue to pull back the curtain further on the lies and deceits of the shadow agenda and receive information and encouragement to boldly stand up and make a difference. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a comment by visiting our website, www.thelibertatumchronicles.com. Until the next episode, be strong, courageous, and encouraged.